Hello, my friends. This is Joanne Lutz. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Third Option Wisdom, the podcast. I want to thank you first for your generous and kind comments from episode one. I appreciate you listening. Today, our topic is borrowing safety. And so our little outline for today, we're going to talk about the natural order, a Janis Joplin influence, trying hard, slapping the bull, three stories about my mom, my Brian Weiss experience, and an aha moment at a workshop. And then we'll end with a little exercise if you stick with me that long. So I want to talk about the natural order as it relates to borrowing safety. And here's what I'm talking about with that. When we are little, when we just arrive here in these very vulnerable bodies that remain vulnerable throughout our entire lives, but most especially when we're tiny and we're not able to lift our own heads or not able to feed ourselves, we certainly can't say, no, that's not okay with me. We're without resources and abilities and physical prowess at that stage. And so the natural order is that we are required to borrow our safety from those who are meant to care for us. And while if we're still here listening to this, somehow or another, you ultimately survived however you managed to borrow that safety. Even if you didn't get what you wanted or what you truly needed at a deep soul level, the bonding level, the being delighted in level, somehow you managed to survive. And yet in the natural order of borrowing safety, it means that our bodies that are already so vulnerable are only a portion of how we are vulnerable when we borrow safety from another person. Because it means that our well-being is dependent on someone else. And that's how we all start. It's the requirement for entry into this life. And over the course of time and experience and maturity, and in some cases trauma, which is true for many of us, we learn other strategies for borrowing safety. As we need it less, we take on different ways. Sometimes we need it just as much and we still find other ways to borrow safety. So let me tell you what I mean by that. When I was three years old, my mom and I moved in with my grandparents in Secaucus, New Jersey. These were her parents. And at that point, my parents had separated. And one evening, my mom decided to 
go back and visit the almost empty apartment where she and my dad and I had lived for a bit. And so I can remember her kneeling on the floor, listening to the 45 of me and Bobby McGee over and over and over again. And she was sobbing, her hands were on her face, just collapsed. And the little record player played over and over with Janis Joplin belting out her most famous, most famous song. This is right after Janis Joplin had died. I didn't know that then, but I've done some research since then. What I do remember is standing near my mom, facing her, as she cried her eyes out, and swaying along with Janice. I can feel, even to this day, my body swaying to me and Bobby McGee. And I was so taken by the music and found myself right so i'm singing along as best i can at 3 years old and suddenly my mom drops her hands from her face and looks at me and smiles she sees what i'm doing hears what i'm doing and she smiles and so i keep going I'm, for any word that I can pick out of the song, I'm singing me and Bobby McGee at three years old, not understanding that Janice had recently died of an overdose, not understanding that I'm just this little thing uh, imitating this powerhouse of a young woman. The only thing that I know is that mom smiling and laughing is better for me than if she's sobbing on the floor. So the person that I need to borrow safety from in that moment clearly was not fully safe for me to be around, was not, I was not experiencing a sense of safety as she was falling apart. And just an FYI, her schizophrenia had tr been triggered in part by the hormonal disruption that happens in having a baby. So she had lost her mind. She had lost her husband. She had lost her independence because now she's living back with her parents again. And all of that angst and trauma and uh, overwhelming energy that filled the corners of that empty apartment 
led me to allow Janice's voice to fill me and for me to entertain this woman who was my safety so that I could be safe, so that I could feel safe. And that's the first memory that I have of caretaking. And caretaking is the difference between sitting on the ledge with someone and asking how they're doing, hearing how they're doing, and trying to talk them down off the ledge. So I was trying to talk her down off the ledge with my antics. That's caretaking. I was taking away her right to feel all of the grief and sadness and angst that she was experiencing because it triggered something in me. I didn't want to deal with the fear that was generated in me when she was in such a messy state. Now, obviously at three, I didn't know I was doing this. All I did was I grasped for some sort of control because the amount of fear that we experience will be a direct relationship to the amount of control that we grasp for. So when borrowing safety from a person doesn't work, very often we will borrow it by a means of attempting to control an outcome, to control the future, to control how someone will respond, to fix something, all so that we don't have to feel the discomfort, the fear, the anger, the sadness, the grief that we might feel in the uncertainty. And given what's going on in the world right now, there's a whole lot of uncertainty and so I think many of us are finding ways to borrow safety. Let's see, about, it would have been about 23 years later, when I was 26. Um, I think that's about right. I think it was when I was 26 that, um, or maybe I was even a bit older. No, I must have been 29. Okay, when I'm in my late 20s, I have problems with numbers, people. You've got to forgive me, please. So when I'm in my late 20s, um, no, mid-20s. When I was in my mid-20s, my husband and I had just moved in together. And we weren't married yet, but we had just moved in together. And so... Mark had an, had an ex-wife at that point and two children. And I was madly in love with this guy. I mean, it was a messy situation, but I was crazy about him. And I really wanted to be part of this family, right? He has two children and I so want to find a place for myself in this dynamic, a way for me to fit in, to contribute, to matter in this family dynamic. And so one of the ways that I would do that was by really trying hard. Now, I hate 
the word trying at this stage of my life. The only way that I'm okay with trying something is when it's trying it on. It could be a pair of shoes. It could be a new practice. It could be uh, trying on a wine tasting because I don't really like wine. So I did that one time to see what was that experience like? But that's really different from the trying of I'm going to make something happen, maybe. But back then, that's what I was doing. I was really trying. So how would I try to fit in? I would advocate as it related to Joe, my stepson, and his schooling. I would plan things for us to do. We had very little money, but when we would scrape together some money to go to the movies with the kids, I would pack sandwiches, I would pack popcorn, I would pack juice boxes because we couldn't afford to both go to the movie and get snacks. So I would make sure we had everything that we could possibly need. But the thing is that it was never enough because part of the joy of going to the movies is getting the snacks. Part of the thing about Mark and I being together is that it meant that in particular, obviously both Joe and Julia, my stepdaughter's parents were no longer together, but Joe was six at that time. So it was a much bigger deal for him than it was for Julia, only in terms of stage of life and their understanding of what it was to have parents together or not. And so if Mark and I were together, it meant that Mark and his ex-wife were not together. And that meant that I was always on the outs. There was no place for me in what Joe wanted, in what his mom wanted. And certainly even with Mark, while he chose to be with me, it was a constant triangulation with me as the bad guy. That was really challenging for me, but it didn't matter. I kept trying. I mean, I really worked hard at being a good potential step parent and ultimately a step parent. I remember when Joe's grandfather died, this would be his mom's father. And sometime thereafter, maybe a month or so later, he was just really sad about his grandfather. And I remember sitting in a beat up old red leather chair with an even more scraped up ottoman that had actually been once Mark's grandfather's chair and ottoman. And I sat there and I invited Joe to come and join me. And he sat in my lap and we just cuddled and talked about grandfathers because mine had meant a lot to me and he was missing his. We were just talking about grandfathers. So we had these little moments together, moments when I would get the hair gel and spike his hair and he would be really jazzed by that. Or when I get all of my safety pins and uh, put them all over his various clothes so that he could punk out for Halloween. And at the end of the day, it was as though none of that mattered because he just didn't want me to exist because I disrupted his natural order of things. 
if there was a me, then his parents weren't going to be together. So despite all of this trying, I also found that there was no person in my world at that time who could trigger me more than that boy. Joe just somehow found every button on my personal landing strip and he could punch, 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 punch those buttons. And so I was on one hand attempting to be the adult to the children in my life that my grandfather was for me because he was the one that really got that I was a kid and accepted me as I was and delighted in me. And so that's who I wanted to be. And simultaneously, I had this benevolent message monster named Joe, who really, I became a monster. I became the step monster. And was that all of the time? No, but it really, really was not. I had some of my least fine moments of my life being his stepmom. Just recently, one of the things that I realized is that in the land of how often I was triggered and how hard I had tried, I recognized that there's a way that being Joe's stepmom for me was a little bit like bull riding. Now, I've never actually ridden a bull, but if you've ever seen it on television or in a movie or whatever, even the fake mechanical bulls, right? Somebody's holding on by one hand and are being jostled all over the place, not knowing what's coming next, not knowing what direction the bull might take you. And a person I looked it up can actually get a concussion without falling just by riding the bull. And you know, when we're concussed, we're not in our right minds. It's like the brain has actually been bruised and we don't function in the way that we're meant to. And that's pretty much how I operated for a good chunk of the time when I was stepmothering my stepchildren. Not a prideful moment. And probably the worst of those was when Joe was about nine years old. So then I would have been about 29. And it was a morning that Mark had already gone to work and it was a school day and I needed to take Joe to school. And I'm doing the things that parental units do, trying to get their kids out the door, you know, brush your teeth, get your shoes tied, whatever the things were. I don't even remember the details. What I remember is Joe looking at me and saying, you want to hit me, don't you? Don't you? You want to hit me? Go ahead, hit me. I don't care. I don't care. Hit me. And then I slapped the kid across the face. what the hell was going on with me that I would slap a nine-year-old boy across the face? 
I'm the person he's supposed to be borrowing safety from in that moment. So can you see how borrowing safety is fraught? Because the people that we borrow it from are not always equipped to provide safety. And when the person that is supposed to be taking care of us in our childhood does not provide safety, we inherently find some other way of either numbing the fear or becoming control freaks in a variety of different ways. We might numb the fear by some sort of an addiction. The addiction could just be anger, ang uh, angry outbursts, violence. I think that would be closest to what Joe's way was at, and in his young days. Whereas my way is to try to control every single little detail at that time. I'm happy to say it's less so now, but man, when he needed safety from me, I was not a Johnny on the spot with the safety. I was a mess myself. So why am I telling that story? Because in the land of borrowing safety, we're not meant to stay as children. We are children at some point. We are required in the natural order of things to borrow safety to begin with. And when that safety does not show up in the way that we want and need it, then we try to figure out some way to create safety for ourselves when we are ill-equipped to do so. And that often lasts beyond its expiration date. So when I was nine years old and my mom and I were living with her new husband, my stepfather in Delaware, they had a little dinner party. They had some friends over for dinner. And as an only child, I was very accustomed to being the only kid with a whole bunch of adults. That was just my norm. And I was not accustomed to being sent to bed. That just seemed weird. So that night, because my mom and her husband and the other couple wanted to hang out together without any children, after dinner, I was sent to bed and I didn't want to go. And so when I finally went into my room, I had found some, uh, there was an old box, like a shirt box. And I just stomped on the box because I was so angry that I wasn't allowed to participate. And my mom came in and she smacked me on my bum. I'd never been hit before. Isn't it ironic that the first time that I'd ever been hit was when I was nine. And when I slapped Joe, he was also nine. Life is very strange. When I was about 12, we were living back at my grandparents' house again. And although there were three bedrooms, my mom and I were required to share a bedroom. We also shared a bed. And 
because of my mom's schizophrenia. She was often in some sort of a drug-induced haze when she was asleep or just waking up or whatever. It was a medically-induced haze, but it was still a drug-induced haze. And so we're in bed, and it's the morning, and she must have talked in her sleep. And I sat up. And I said, what, mom? And she sits up and she slaps me across the face. And I just burst into tears because I had no idea what had just happened. For that matter, she had no idea what had just happened. Whatever was going on in her drug-induced haze, it had no thing to do with me. But I happened to be the recipient of that slap. Fast forward another four years and I'm 16 years old. And now she and I are living alone in an apartment. And she has just attempted suicide. I was the person who found her. She was in the hospital for 10 days. I was living alone for 10 days. She comes back and now it's over Christmas, school Christmas vacation. And she and I are having an argument because I'm really pissed off that she had attempted suicide, left me a note that said, Joanne, if I seem strange when you come home, don't pay attention. Everything's fine. Obviously, everything was not fine. In any case, she and I are arguing. We are near the front door of the apartment. And again, she slaps me across the face. And that time, it's funny, I can't remember, some part of my body says I slapped her back. I don't know if I actually did or not. What I know is I did storm out and I left for several days and never told her where I'd been. So the person that I most needed to keep me safe, the one that I was borrowing my safety from, was pretty unpredictable. And she was where the sun ro rose and set for me. Even though my grandfather had been my person, my one person who got that I was a kid, all of my loyalty was to my mom. So when I was maybe about 10 years old and my mother and her parents who we were living with at the time had been arguing just doing battle with each other loud loud voices things being slammed around my mom decided that for the night, she and I would go spend a night at a motel because she just needed to get the hell out of there. And so we went out to the car and she remembered that she had to go back in for something. And so I was in the car. And when she walks up the couple of steps to the front door, my grandfather opens the door, pushes his hand into her face, 
and says, you are not welcome here and pushes her, gives her a shove in the face so that she stumbles down those couple of stairs. And I remember being in the car, screaming and yelling and crying because this was my beloved grandfather. And what was he doing with my mom? The people that we need to borrow safety from are not always equipped in a moment that we need them to provide the safety that we need. And although we may discover strategies for managing to create an illusion of safety, very often we don't actually get in touch with how to truly create safety within ourselves. And I believe that's a kind of maturity and a skill set that we don't develop without some help. So now we move to about maybe three or four years ago. And I was at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York doing a five-day training program with Brian Weiss. And if you don't know who Dr. Brian Weiss is, he is the premier past life regression therapist. And I had been at a workshop of his the year before that was just a couple of days. And that was pretty interesting. I had done past life regressions prior to ever experiencing anything with Dr. Weiss. Um, and what was funny about that is that many years before a friend of mine, Jamie and I were taking a class together and the therapist who was leading the class, this is when I was training to be a coach and the therapist who was leading the class would, you know, take a question from Jamie and Jamie would talk about past life regressions again and again and again. He kept trying to hijack the class so that we'd ultimately be able to do past life regressions. And at the summer camp experience that I mentioned in the last podcast, the one where I revisited one of my just right moments at the beach, at that summer camp, we did past life regressions. And I wasn't that excited about it. It was fine. Whatever we were going to do was fine. But when Jamie said, Joanne, don't you want to know what, you know, what your past lives were like? And I said, Jamie, I think I knew. So I don't really anticipate really anything happening. You know, I'm up for trying it, but I, I don't have a big agenda with this. And then, of course, I went on to have experience after experience after experience as I was in the hypnotic state and were those things real or not? It doesn't matter because I learned something every time. Okay, so now we go back to a couple of years ago and I'm at this workshop with Brian Weiss and he asks of the people in the room, and there were hundreds of people in the room, of the people in the room, he asks for a volunteer for anyone who's been having experiences because not everybody has past life experiences uh, in the beginning, right? Meaning that 
there's a certain state that you need to get into. And it's not always so easy to achieve that state. It takes practice. And once you're practiced, then you might have some experiences. Great. Well, obviously I've been having experiences for years with past life regression type stuff and meditative experiences. And so when he asked if anyone was interested in coming up on stage and doing a demonstration with him for this, he called it a rapid induction technique of hypnosis to get someone into the state for doing a regression. When he invited people to do that, of course, you can imagine if you have the premier therapist of past life regression in your midst, everyone wants that opportunity. Everyone wants to work with that guy. So I was part of everyone. I raised my hand and I was very lucky to be the one chosen that time. So I go up on stage with him and he does the rapid induction technique. I'm out in a heartbeat and immediately I am right back to being in that car screaming as my grandfather shoves my mom down those couple of stairs. And then from there we go back, not just a memory in this life, but into another life where I had been training with my sensei to become a warrior. And I had many years from the time that I was about four years old until I was a young man, I had trained with this sensei. And although I had met this, I had been in this life another time during another regression, this time I realized that the energy of the sensei was the energy of my grandfather. And so when I came out and I talked about the love for that person, Brian turns to me and says, of course, because the love transcends all of the barriers. It transcends time and space and life and death. And so there was a healing that happened between me and the memory of my grandfather because something had really broken that day when he was no longer a source of safety because he had, in my vision, hurt my mom. So it is possible to heal and repair the places where safety has been wounded, injured, where it's been threatened. It is possible to heal things that have come before. But it really takes a lot of work. And if you don't believe in past life regressions, that's completely fine because even though I've had a bunch of things that seem like that, I don't know if they're real or not. It's kind of irrelevant. What mattered to me is that each time I have some opportunity for healing something. And that's where the value is to me. What I can tell you is that when I was in my late 20s, 
my husband and I attended a workshop. It was probably the first group activity I had ever participated in. And our couples therapist at the time, Bunny Jewel, had done this workshop. It's a weekend long workshop. She had done this workshop for many years, several times a year. And she had two people that ran the workshop with her. One of them was this guy named Frank. And on one of the days of the weekend, Frank would take the guys into the room, one room and do some guy work in there while Bunny and one of her former students, who is now a full-fledged therapist herself, Preeta, would run the women's room. So on this particular Saturday, I'm sitting in a circle with Bunny and Preeta and a bunch of other women. And it's my turn and Bunny is trying to find a doorway in. Something to help me to not be living the really difficult suffering life that I was living at the time. Not because of external circumstances, but because of what I would do in my own head. The stories I would tell myself, the ways that I would try to control things, the many childhood wounds that had yet to be unearthed and healed. So she was looking for a doorway in. And then I notice Preeta scooching up behind me. We're on the floor. She's scooching up behind me. She puts her arms around me. And she just says, go ahead, lean back. I'm not that comfortable leaning back, and I don't really know this Preeta woman at that point. And she just says, what's happening in your body, sweetie? And I had absolutely no idea what she was talking about. It was as though she was speaking a foreign language to me. I'm like, what? What do you mean? She's like, in your body as she has one hand on her belly and one hand on my heart. What's happening in your body, sweetie? And it was the very, very first time that I started to realize that I wasn't just a walking head. I only had the barest glimmer of it then. But in that moment, Preeta opened a doorway for me. She opened a doorway of realizing that my body had messages for me. My body could be a barometer of what was happening to me, for me, in me. If my shoulders were up by my ears, if my back was tight, if my stomach was in a knot, if my speech was very fast, if my breathing was incredibly shallow. Every one of those markers over the coming years became a noticing for me and kind of like 
like the check engine light on the dashboard of a car. Something's up here. Pay attention. And so it was just a glimmer at that time. It was a brand new idea. But I started to realize over time, it was my first invitation to, I am inherently safe in me if I pay attention to the sensations of my body. There is a loving act that happens between me and me when I notice and honor what sensations I'm experiencing in this body that I have. It means that I use my head for something other than trying to figure things out in a manipulative kind of way, in a logical kind of way. It means that I'm using my head to attune to my own inner knowing based on what's happening. What's the temperature of my body? Where am I clenched? Where am I loose? Am I actually so loose that I'm barely functioning? What's happening? Without any judgment about it, by the way, that part took a long time, but just to notice that my body and me attending to my body, that is not about borrowing safety. That's beginning to learn an inherent step, a first time, a first version of what it is for me to be safe in me. It was like a moment of aha, a moment of welcoming a kind of maturity that I didn't need another person anymore to make me safe. I didn't need to try to control everything and everyone around me for me to be safe. The way that I could be safe was to pay attention to myself and what was happening in me, for me, beginning with the sensations of my body and what my body is trying to message me. So I moved over time, not all at once, but over time, I moved from borrowing safety to a first step of knowing inherent safety. And remember what I said in the beginning that our bodies are vulnerable always. In this life, on this earth, that's the nature of bodies. As we witness person after person in one way or another impacted by this virus in the world right now. we are reminded how, how very vulnerable these bodies are. And yet the essence of who we be that lives inside 
of this container that we call a body is always safe. It is always whole. It is always a spark of the universe. But we get scared and we forget and we get traumatized and we forget. And we leave our bodies, we disconnect. I became a walking head for so many years, not realizing that that's what I had done. About a year ago, maybe not quite a year ago, I was at a something to say workshop with Rob Bell. And when I was speaking with him, he said, oh yeah, you got rescued from your head. He's like, that's great. Not a great title for a book, but, <laughs> and I just laughed because I did. I got rescued by my, from my head by finding my body finding what the body had to offer me. And that moment I told you about at the workshop, that was just one of a hundred billion times that I would need to be reminded and practice coming back to my body again and again and again so that I could develop the muscles of safety between me and me. So I could remember that I am inherently safe in who I am. And my body can help to remind me of that as I attend to it. So with that in mind, I'm going to invite you to try on a practice with me right now. It's very simple. I have an old client that refers to it as the magic school bus exercise. Because basically, you're gonna begin by taking a couple of deep breaths. So just breathe. Notice where you are, hopefully someplace comfortable, hopefully someplace you can close your eyes. And notice your heels against whatever surface they may be resting against. Notice how your back is being supported. Be aware of where your body begins and ends, the physical boundary between you and whatever surfaces may be supporting you. And breathe. Breathe so that 
you can feel that breath filling the belly, filling the chest and letting it go. Breathe so that it's such a deep breath, you can feel it all the way to your toes. And allow your mind to go inside to your toes with your breath. You imagine swirling around the inside of each toe, as my client used to say, as though it's a magic school bus. And you're paying attention to how are each of those toes doing? What do you notice? Are they hot? Are they cold? Are they stiff? Are they loose? Are they scrunched? Are they stretched? You cannot do this wrong. You're just paying attention to what's happening in your body. And you allow your attention to wander through your feet. Breathing into your ankles, swirling all around. Maybe they're a little creaky. Maybe they're a little stiff. Maybe they're nice and warmed up. Bring your attention from your ankles into your calves, into your shins, the whole lower leg up into your knees, anything you notice. Maybe you've got a little Charlie horse. No judgment, just noticing. Moving up into your thighs, breathing and noticing. Even noticing if it seems like some part of your body is disconnected from the rest as though, oh, I seem to have no sensation there whatsoever. That's a noticing, no judgment, just a noticing. Bring your attention with your breath and your mind into your hips, into the secret chakra. Notice what you notice there. Work your way up your spine, round and round, while also including all of your organs, your intestines, your liver, your stomach. Pay attention to anything that is asking for you to notice it in this moment. You are giving yourself a gift in this moment by honoring this amazing package that carries you from place to place and provides you with information if you're willing to listen and see and feel. Pay attention to your lungs and to your heart. 
into your shoulders and your throat. Swirl around both arms, elbows, forearms, wrists, hands, fingers, thumbs. Breathing. Noticing what you notice. Swirl back up into your neck and throat. Into your jaw. Your ears. Your tongue. How does the roof of your mouth feel? How do your teeth feel right now in your mouth? What sensations if any, are you aware of, of your lips, your face, your eyes, your nose, your forehead, even your scalp? Breathe and release. Just make a mental note of any sensations that you became aware of by doing this very simple body scan. There's nothing else to do with it in this moment. This is just a practice that you might want to adopt to begin to move from borrowing safety to finding your inherent safety. I expect that we may work with this more in the future, building on this practice. For this moment though, just thank yourself for taking this time, for gifting yourself these few moments of love and attention, and for both your body and your mind for sharing with you any sensations that may be present as you explored in your personal magic school bus. And with that, my friends, I thank you for being with me today. The things that I have learned about borrowing safety are that it's absolutely necessary at some point in our lives. And we begin it with the people who are meant to take care of us. When those people don't, won't, can't provide the safety that we need, and that happens to all of us at some point, both on the giving end and on the receiving end, we find other ways to attempt to manipulate safety, to create an illusion of safety, and control is just an illusion. And it's kind of an intermediate step. It's like trying to, to be big when we're not quite big yet. It just means that we're scared and we're trying to grasp for something to hold on to. And the really fabulous news is that there is another way 
for you to begin to learn what kind of safety truly exists within you, that the essence of who you be is always safe. And for, for today, I invite you to find that in your body. That was where I started. Maybe that will work for you too. Maybe it's a starting place. doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable right away. It may be awkward. It may be strange. It may be just the strain, this unfamiliar, ugh, I don't like doing this. That's okay. You don't have to like it every moment. And still I encourage you to give it a go. Try it on. See what it feels like. Your ability to find safety in yourself by attending to yourself is such a potent, empowering cocktail. And I invite you to sip from that drink again and again, especially as we all together face this time of uncertainty. Every time that you find your safety within yourself, you unwittingly extend an invitation to others to do the same. It has a ripple effect. And that is mighty powerful, my friends. So thank you for being with me. I appreciate your time. I appreciate every one of you. I want you to know that even when you forget to believe in yourself, I believe in you. And with that, I send you my love, and I look forward to our next time together. Be well.